Can we go? Tell me action. <laughs> go. Resilience Conversations. I am Katie Perez with the ESDAC Resilience Team, and I'm super excited to be here today with Carmen Zeisler, my amazing colleague, and then Sam Neal, who was the Kansas Teacher of the Year in 2018. This is the first time that we're in podcast format, so we've always done we've always done the the whole um, webinar or video thing. We never really had a good name for it, and I always wore my jean jacket, but I'm not wearing my jean jacket today. Um, I am. I'm barely dressed, to be honest, because it's summer in the times of COVID. So, um, you know, you don't need to see the fact that I don't have my eyebrows on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We are going to jump in and get started with a check-in that is really important to us. Sam, I don't know if you've uh, experienced our check-in before, but when we check in, what we normally do is just, are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And what is that mostly about for you today? So, Carmen, do you want to check in first? Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm a mixture of a little sad and a little afraid. We had some brave, awkward, and kind conversations this morning in our team meeting. And so I'm I'm still kind of right there with all of that. Like, you know, nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. But it's just those kind of awkward, brave conversations that we have to have as we're, we're doing the work. Yeah. Thanks, Carmen. I would say I'm probably a combination of mad and glad. I'm a little mad at myself. I originally thought we were doing a Zoom meet, so (laughs) to be in person is quite a treat. But I think that that's where the gladness comes from, is being able to just be here with you two and be in person and talk about something that's very important to me. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Um, I'm glad um, like Sam said, I, it's kind of fun to be in person. Um, Carmen and I get to hang out in person quite a bit, but mm-hmm. we don't always get to hang out with our other our other friends. So um, it is fun to be here with a, with someone else today. Um, I'm a little afraid. I go. This is new. Um, this idea of a podcast version of Resilience Conversations has been important <laughs> to Carmen and I for. Um, a good three, solid year. Three seasons now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the fact that we're doing it is exciting, but um, the fact that we're doing it is a f- terrifying. So, um, yeah, a lot of glad. A little afraid, a little nervous. I always think my daughter has a video where she's handing out Halloween candy for the first time, and I ask her, like, are you excited? And she's like, a little nervous. <laughs> 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 I've never done it before. And that's how I feel right now. <laughs> well, Thanks, Katie, for that. So what we want to do today is um, over the next several weeks, we just want to have an open conversation around Dr. Perry and Oprah Winfrey's new book, What Happened to You? We encourage you to pick up the book um, at your local independent bookstore, kind of read along with us. And really the idea is when Katie and I talked about it, we were like, how can we talk about what's happening in the book? We can invite people in and have like real specific questions to ask. And we said, let's just have an open conversation. Let's just bring in educators and let's just have an open conversation around the topics that are included in this book. And those of us in the trauma-informed world, I mean, 
I mean, Dr. Perry. <laughs> I mean, we love, love Dr. Perry. Slight fangirl. Yes. And his work. And so we're just, I mean, I'm just excited for us to just be able to just to dive in and, and to have this com- to have this conversation today and to continue over the next four weeks. Yeah. So definitely we encourage people to pick up the book. Mm-hmm. Carmen, there's also a book study guide that they released. Yeah that people can download as well from Dr. Perry's website, which is www.neurosequential.com. Yeah. And it is not a sponsor. I feel like my voice went into sponsor mode there. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a free study guide that they created. Yes. So awesome. So jumping in here, kind of just have a a quote from the book. Do we want to start there and then just kind of discuss that point? Sounds good. Yeah. So In the book, and I believe this is from chapter one, it says, all experience is processed from the bottom up, meaning to get to the top, smart part of our brain, we have to go through the lower, not so smart part. This sequential processing means that the most primitive reactive part of our brain is the first part to interpret and act on the information coming in from our senses. Bottom line, our brain is organized to act and to feel before we think. So, What does this mean to us as educators? I guess it's the question that I would have. You know, when we consider effective ways to teach, learn, and organize, what does this mean? What does this idea of of this bottom-up process mean to you guys? You know, this is something that I think about a lot, especially as I have grown as an educator over the last 18 years. There's so much more behind a student's action than I might realize and I think as a young educator, I took that very personally, where I felt like I was doing something wrong or that I had done something that they didn't like, when really it's about all of these experiences that come together and meet up with what we're doing in class and meet up with the kind of person who is in front of them. And so more so than my reaction, it's a willingness to stop and pause which I'm not always great at Um, in the moment. That's really hard to do, to stop and pause and think about like what's driving this. Up until about four or five years ago when I first started learning about trauma and learning about ACEs and what it does to the brain, I never really considered that. I either figured it was what is wrong with them, which they talk about extensively in these first few chapters, or what is wrong with me, Mm -hmm. not what has happened to drive this. Beautiful, Sam. Thanks for that. I think for me, I think of that, that our brain is organized to act and feel before we think. And that feeling piece, I feel that. So I think like in my classroom, how would I do things differently? If I was in the classroom right now, how would I do things differently? Or how are we going to do things differently in the ESDAC learning centers because of this idea. I don't know what that looks like, sounds like, feels like yet. You know, I always go back to those kindergarten words of what does that look like, sound like, feel like, but I'm excited to, to dig in and figure that out. I think about it in terms, <laughs> since I don't have a classroom anymore, I think about it in terms of the conversations I have with my own child when she comes home from mm. her classroom and how, how frequently she's already turned off that feeling piece, like how hard it is for her as a nine-year-old to say, I felt this. And just go into that immediate, like, this is what happened. This is what I think. This is what I've decided about someone. Her brain has gone through that whole process already, and she's stuck Mm -hmm. in the thought process instead of being able to go back. And so working with her on that has been really interesting, I guess, over the past several months of just, well, what were you feeling 
before that happened. And she can get there much faster once we've been working on it for a while. So what would that look like in a classroom if that was our first approach Mm -hmm. instead of why did you do that? What were you thinking? What are you feeling right now? It's kind of exciting. It sounds like a lot of time and learning on my part as an educator, but it sounds like we get places faster. Katie, it kind of reminds me of what we were kind of dabbling in a little bit yesterday with the process logs. Mm -hmm. What happened? Were you mad, sad, glad, and afraid? glad or afraid and where were you feeling yeah. it in your body and if I was a, in a classroom as an educator and I had that maybe I'd be able to start looking at you right so Sam's in my class mm-hmm. and something's going on where is she feeling something in her body I think we give clues away yeah um, and so maybe I could be more in tune to my students to, to understand something's something's happening to them right now how can I respond instead of reacting And I think this is, I mean, so crucial. I remember talking to my administrator this spring. I feel like I've learned a lot about trauma and how the brain works, and it's something that I believe in, and I want it to continue to guide my instruction, and yet sometimes I feel so lacking Mm -hmm. in the resources and the knowledge of how to truly implement that. And sometimes it's through something simple, like instead of, why are you doing that? how are you feeling about things right now? It takes away the threat. It takes away the, I guess, non-visible finger pointing um, Mm -hmm. that so many feel when you are called out for something by an adult or a colleague or a parent to really just start with the, how are you feeling right now and making it okay to share that. Yeah. Uh, Those tools are really important. Yeah. Well, and that's the power of the check-in. Right. Is it not? Like right. we continue on the resilience team to go to the, are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And what's that mostly about? And I don't know if we were able to do that as a, as a staff at a school, if it was just a part of, part of culture, mm-hmm. I want, I wonder what would, you know, when things do, when things do happen, but we're able to go back to that check-in again and focusing then on the feeling. Wow, I think that could be game changer. Yeah, just even the process log kind of idea or a think sheet is mm-hmm. what it's probably mostly called. But, you know, when a kiddo comes in and they're experiencing something, what makes you mad about that? And then knowing that sad and afraid are behind that, when we dig in, we can really get to what's happening in the brain in that moment that led to um, actions um, or experiences, yeah. Because, you know, like Dr. Green talks about, like, well, he, when we interviewed him a while ago, he talked about, you know, it's all behaviors a form of communication. <laughs> and so it's, it's again, getting, like you said, Katie, getting behind the, the mad and really looking in at the sad and afraid. Well, it kind of normalizes things. Like mm-hmm. I think about how, like, if I had a student who was acting out or off task in class, regulating myself mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, where am I at right now? Because I would be mad and afraid. I'm, I'm mad that I'm being shown a little disrespect and I don't understand why. I'm afraid that they're not going to learn the content that I'm trying to teach them that I know they need to have to be successful. And if as adults, we can better regulate that and model that for our kids, it becomes much easier for them. I had that conversation with my son. He's going to be eight. Yesterday, I'd asked him to go up to his room to cool down. He was mad at his brother. And on the way up, he screamed, what's wrong with me? 
And I said, I don't think anything's wrong with you. I think that you're feeling big feelings. I think you're feeling mad. And sometimes mad feels hot. And talking him through that and realizing how even as adults, I need to stop and say, okay, I think you feel mad right now. And sometimes mad feels hot and maybe you need to go cool down. Modeling that. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it's huge. Well, I think that kind of leads into this idea here of it's not about, the quote from the book was, it's not about no stress, it's about dose stress. And so really that idea that as adults, we can help kids understand that this is normal. Feelings are normal. To not have feelings would be weird, right? So how do we show in those moments? I am stressed right now. And here's that level of, this is too much stress for me to handle. So I'm going to do this, this, and this to, mm-hmm. to, to regulate myself, right? And when we model those things like you did with your son, that normalizes it and helps them see that I'm going to feel this way and it's okay. And there are strategies to help me move forward. Yeah, I always think of when I was visiting James, our friend James Moffat, his school, and how over the, inter, you know, when he did the morning announcements, one of the things that he did is he would always check in with everybody, like where he was at. And so it was really fascinating, like, because in the hallways and stuff, the kids would, if he checked in that he he was, I, I let's say, mad or, or afraid during the day, kids were checking in on him, like, how are you doing, Mr. Moffat? Like, what's going on? And I just thought that was a beautiful, a beautiful vulnerability of a principal to share where they're at with their whole, with his whole student body. And that vulnerability leads to connection and relationship, mm-hmm. which leads to resilience, right? Yes. So when I say as a grown up that I'm not perfect, yeah. <laughs> kids accept that and we connect on a different level. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So another piece of this book that was really fascinating to me is the idea of, so I have to call, I have to, Katie I, the scientist. Katie the scientist is coming, right? I have to, I have to put a, a caveat here that um, I, if education didn't work out, I wanted to be a neuropsychologist. So like this, <laughs> this fusion of these two worlds is like my greatest dream being achieved <laughs> in the world. But just the idea of attachment and neuroplasticity. I remember believing early in my education career that who we are is set by the time we enter kindergarten. In fact, I think I was taught that. Mm -hmm. Maybe not explicitly taught that, but the way education programs taught us about the brain and development, it seemed very much so that by the time they get to be kindergartners, we get who we get. It is what it is. And I struggled against that as someone who maybe had my own kind of disorganized attachment style as a kiddo and then later formed very secure attachments with friends and family members and and in in romantic relationships. So I've I've struggled against how can I be who I am at five and my brain not change. And now we know that's not true. We know that the brain does change over time and yet we still seek out the types of relationships that we first experienced as young children. And that fascinates me that in a classroom, some of the behavior we're seeing is a form of communication of the attachment style that kiddo came to us with, and yet we can still help be healers of that for them. I don't know. What are your thoughts of that? Am I just the weirdo neuro 
<laughs> science nerd in the room who thinks that our brains have these amazing opportunities. Have, how have you thought or seen attachment play out in your classroom and relationships with kids? Wow. I think that, so this kind of ties into some Brene Brown stuff. Yeah. But I think so much of that is tied to the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking about that on the way over here, how... I have certain students who come to mind and even uh, myself, my children, my, my family, we're all telling ourselves different stories. And what's the outcome of that? Am I worthy? Am I worthwhile? Am I, does someone hear me? Does someone see me? Am I worth being heard and seen? Mm-hmm. And I think about as a teacher, I teach high school, so often I'm seeing 100 kids a day. Am I taking the time to make sure I acknowledge each of them by name, even if that's the only acknowledgement I can give them individually each day so that we can get to that story of them mm-hmm. so that if the day comes where they need to try to grow or change or reflect, it's a safe place to do that. I I do think, and I don't know if this crosses over into fix and growth mindset at all too, but this idea that we don't have to be like shoved into one little peg or one little hole that we can grow, that learning looks different, that learning feels different, and getting to a point where kids are okay with that, that's a scary feeling that in order to truly learn and grow and for their brains to do what they need to do, they do have to feel safe in our classrooms. But what story are they telling themselves when they walk in? Mm -hmm. I mean, math teachers hear it all the time. My mom wasn't good at math, so I'm not good at math. Or my dad wasn't good at English, so I'm not good at English. Yeah. Lots of stories. We're telling ourselves lots of stories for sure. I I, I just think it's so exciting, all of this that's coming into the world. And I think Dr. Perry and and Oprah have really, they talk about it in a way that it gives access to lots of people, mm-hmm. which I don't think there was access for a lot of this for a lot of people. True. And so just the way that they're having the conversation, be it that you listen to it on Audible or you're reading the book, like it's very clearly a conversation mm-hmm. about all of this. Mm-hmm. And so, and on, on a lot of like the the chats or the different podcasts and stuff that I've watched of both of them over the last month or so since the book came out, they're they're just they're just kind of no nonsense about all of this, you know. But in the kindest way of, we've got to learn, we've got to understand that we can learn differently, mm-hmm. and as parents, we need to know that too, and as educators, as whatever field we're in, that there's the ability for the brain to change. And we, we've got we've to stop that script of we can't. Yeah. We have to stop that script as, of saying that into the world too. Mm-hmm. For sure. You saying that though makes me think one of the things that I wrote down or, or highlighted dealt with the word love, mm-hmm. right? And let's see if I can find it here. I talked about how, or I wrote down in my book about how it says the capacity to love is at the core of the success of humankind. The reason we've survived on this planet is that we've been able to form and maintain effective groups. And it, it 
I wrote a question, yet love is viewed sometimes as weak. The mm-hmm. act of loving is viewed as soft, is viewed as weak, and that ties into this neuroplasticity. It ties into uh, learning and classroom culture, and how do we shift that? Like uh, the ability to help a student name an emotion or to do the check-in. I keep coming back to those activities because I think the act of loving, and there's many different levels of loving, is sometimes viewed as soft or weak when it's really the hardest thing that we'll do. It's the most vulnerable thing we'll do. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That just hit me that our kids need to see us model more than anything love. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about that this year with the pandemic. If at the end of the school year, my students could say, we did our best. Mrs. Neal loved me and we made it Mm -hmm. and we were okay. Like that's a big thing to know that someone cares for you. Right. Um, so on days where it may not have seemed like the right kind of learning was happening, I felt that need to pause and love them just a little bit, whether it was helping them walk through some, you know, guided breathing or just something to calm their, their busy minds down. And I kept, I would say, gosh, this doesn't feel rigorous enough. Hmm. This doesn't feel um, strong enough, but it it's exactly what is needed in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the strength may not be in the activity. It's in recognizing what we've got to do. Well, and as a parent, for me, I, you know, I left the classroom at the same time that my daughter was entering a classroom for the first real time. And uh, first of all, her kindergarten teacher was like milk and cookies in human <laughs> form. I had no concern of her being loved in that classroom. But as an educator and as a parent, making that shift was really hard for me. And I remember sitting down at like kindergarten intake kind of thing. And the teacher asked me to write down, like, what are your goals for your kiddo this year? And all I could think of was to be loved. And that's what I wrote on the paper because she will learn to read. She will learn to do math. She will, I have no doubt in my mind that the school she goes to will teach her academically. But if she's going to spend seven hours a day there for 13 years, I want her to feel like she belongs. Mm-hmm. I want her to feel safe and I want her to feel successful, which all comes back to, is she loved? Yeah. And that's what I want her to walk away with. And so I think that even for those of us who think, well, schools need to be rigorous, they need to be academic and we're losing our focus and this isn't my job. Oh, it is your job because all of you, I can't separate those things anymore in my head. Yeah. I do my best when I feel loved. Mm-hmm. And I think kids will too. Well, doesn't that go back to like the resilience? I mean, yeah. the resiliency, <laughs> like the, you know, we know, you know, from the Harvard Center of the Developing Child that like you develop resiliency with safe, supportive, caring adults. Right. Yeah, and year after year, I'm going to throw another one out because I'm that girl. Year after year, Gallup tells us that kids who can say, my teachers are committed Mm -hmm. to my success, and I have one teacher who makes me feel excited about the future, are 30 times more likely to be successful in their futures. And I can tell you that the teachers who were committed to me and who made me feel successful and hopeful about my future are the ones that I had a relationship with. 
100%. In which I felt loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. So I had a full circle moment last week, and I really haven't talked to anyone about it, so I might get a little little emotional. We'll see. But I was in Fort Scott at the Lowell Milken Center for a fellowship, and I got Congratulations, a, by the way. Thank yes. you. It was an amazing experience. But what hit me, and it's just one of those moments, I got a message from my mom, and she was having lunch with our grade school secretary and my brother's first grade teacher, and... I'm still very connected to the teachers who are in my grade school. My parents divorced when I was in third grade, and it was very important to my mom that I stay at the same grade school. Like, she found rentals in that neighborhood close enough so that we could walk. We became latchkey kids at the time, latchkey kids. And we would call mom before we walked to school, and the school knew if we didn't show up that she, they were to call her, and then we would call mom when we got home from school. And I really always felt like when I walked through the school doors, I could just be me. I got a message from my mom last week that my former elementary principal owned the bookstore in Fort Scott. And I got a chance to see her and just thank her for the kind of environment that she and her teachers created for me. And I don't know if, you know, I I just told her, I said it at a time when my brother and I could have reacted in a lot of different ways because we were going through a lot of big emotions with divorce. We felt loved. And I think, you know, looking at that now, just having the opportunity, first of all, to thank her and tell her that but then also realize like how much that has shaped what I want to see happening in my classroom and my school and my children's school and my district and across the state and across the nation, this change. It's something that's been there, I think, in pockets. And this, a book like this makes it more possible to be implemented and, and just, to just grow. I mean, I I truly think when I look back on my childhood, my identity starts at that school. Yeah. I I am a Jefferson Jet from Great Bend, Kansas, (laughs) through and through. Like, it is just, I don't know, it's it's an important responsibility that educators take on. And I think that's sometimes hard to describe to the public really how heavy that responsibility is. Mm -hmm. And I know my teachers weren't alone in trying to make us comfortable, Mm -hmm. but they definitely created a place that was open and loving. I don't know. It was a cool experience just to be able to see that, that educator and say, thank you. Yeah. 30 years later was cool. Fantastic. (laughs) I think it's time to wrap it up here. So, you know, let's just talk real quick, a couple of words. What is it you're taking away from this conversation today? For me, I think it's probably going to be the same every time. I am taking away hope that there's so much opportunity for us now to continue talking about this and just the excitement of what is to come now that someone like Oprah Winfrey has put her name behind this topic in such a large way that I think there's immense healing getting ready to come into the world. So a lot of hope. Carmen? For me, I'm just taking, I'm taking away community. The fact that we're here to, together today, face-to-face, but also that we're going to get to read along with people that are joining us on this journey. Community is a powerful thing, and 
just the idea of being able to circle up and have these conversations is, it just makes my heart so happy. Thanks, Carmen. I think mine would be action. Mm -hmm. uh, that I stop and that I pause, that I reflect and think about this question that might be driving behaviors and that I put into place things that I'm learning along the way, even something as simple as, are you mad, glad, sad, or afraid in my classroom mm -hmm. to help get to the root of a behavior or to make my classroom a safer place. Thanks. So, Katie, is it okay if I jump in here? Yeah, please yeah. do. So, you know, we want you to tell us what makes you mad, sad, glad, or afraid about these chapters, about chapters one through three. And if you could just tell us your thoughts and just hashtag it Resilience Conversations, we would love to be able to read along with you. And for next week, we're going to be just diving in and talking about chapters four and five. Thanks, Carmen. So we always like to close with a quick hope spotlight. And so we just want to invite you that as we have this conversation together and grow in our community, Carmen's favorite word, that we have an opportunity to be together in person at our Bridging to Resilience Conference, November 11th through 13th in Overland Park. And you can find more information about that at resilienceteam.esdac.org. So Overland Park, Kansas. Overland Park, Kansas. Yes, yes, because we're gonna have right millions near, of people right listening near to. Kansas City. Right. So easy Just fly right in. there. Easy yeah. fly in. Yep. Come join us. Come join us. Okay. Well, until next week, we love, we love you. you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Thanks for your time. 